Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke, chapter 11. Our text today is verses 29 through 36. Luke eleven twenty-nine through 36. As we think about this year's Lottie Moon Christmas offering, one of the strengths of our network of churches known as the Southern Baptist Convention is indeed the way that we can network together and partner together for the work and advance of the gospel among the nations. And I want to encourage you and remind you that this opportunity to give during this season is one of the most substantial ways that you and I can partner together in seeking uh, the, the, the advance of the gospel in hard-to-reach places. And I want to encourage you to be prayerful uh, and sacrificial this year in your giving towards this offering because of what that supports. That in mind, let's read and hear from God's Word, Luke 11, beginning in verse 29. These are the words of the Lord. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth that we may hear it, that we may be changed by it. Lord, would you speak into our lives today and further conform us into the image of your son. We thank you for this time that we have now. Give us understanding and help us by your spirit that we might know you more and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it take to convince you that something is true? What does it take to convince you that something is true? Well, this probably depends on a lot of things, depending on the situation, depending on what that thing is. Maybe it would depend on the person sharing with you. The evidence to confirm whether or not something is valid. Maybe personal experience or the testimony of others who have such experience. On and on we could go. There's a lot of factors that are at play when trying to convince us of the validity and the truthfulness of something. There are plenty of things that have been proven and confirmed throughout the ages that are still denied today. The moon landing. Some still believe that that was filmed in a studio, maybe in Hollywood, that it never happened. Some still believe the earth is flat. Some still deny that the Holocaust actually happened. 
And as of late, there are still those who were saying that the coronavirus is fake. It's not real. People question reality. Truth is often on trial. And that was certainly no different in Jesus' day, especially regarding Jesus. As he continued his earthly ministry, the crowds increased, but so did the skepticism. The crowds continued to press in around Jesus, and what we see from our text today and continuing even from the last week is that the crowds continue to put Jesus on trial. We, we were told in verse 16 that they were seeking signs from him to test him, to validate whether or not these things were true. They were not buying it that he was in fact the Messiah. So they wanted more proof. They wanted more evidence, but Jesus doesn't play into their game. He doesn't play by their rules. Instead, what we see in this text today, he puts them on trial. And he shows not only the error of their request, but the error of their hearts. So as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to, we're going to look into this text and see how Jesus provides some very important clarifying and condemning words for the generation of his day, for the people of his day. As they attempt to put him on trial, he is actually the one that sits in judgment over them. And as he does so, we see a strong warning for us today. We're gonna to walk through this passage today and make three observations followed with some specific application. Three observations that we see regarding this warning and clarification even from Jesus. First of all, we see a revealing request. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Crowds continued to increase. And it becomes increasingly clear that they were not following Jesus because they believed him to be the Messiah they were following Jesus because they were demanding more from him. They were seeking, the text says, for a sign. And Jesus doesn't beat around the bush here at all. He calls them out for who they truly were. He said, this generation is an evil generation. Think about that. Think about the setting. Think about the crowds forming, the increased number of people coming to him, demanding signs, demand, demanding more miracles, demanding more from him. And he simply says, this generation is an evil generation. What was it that marked them as such? What was it that characterized them in Jesus' mind as being evil? He gives us the answer. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Now, God has, throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testament alike, given us many signs. 
He's done it before countless times over as he's demonstrated through signs, through wonders, through miracles, certain things about him and about the promise. So the fact that the crowds request a sign is not necessarily unusual. Other people in the Scriptures have requested signs. Think of Gideon, for example, have requested signs from God, and God gives them a sign. God has given plenty of signs before. So why is it that the crowds request and demand for a sign now marks them out as evil? And why didn't Jesus just do another sign? I mean, why didn't he just request fire from heaven or make an earthquake happen? Anything. I mean, he could have done anything at this point. He could have said, okay, if you want a sign, here. Certainly could have done that. And in fact, he does tell them that they will be given a sign, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. He says it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except one, the sign of Jonah. So he denies their request for another sign. But he says, I'll give you one, and that will be the sign of Jonah. Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? If not, it's in the Old Testament. Jonah was a prophet called by God to go to a place called Nineveh to warn the Ninevites of coming judgment. Ninevites were wicked, pagan, idolatrous people. And Jonah is called from, by the Lord to, to go to this pagan, idolatrous people and to warn them that God is going to bring justice and bring judgment upon them. And Jonah says, no thank you. They were so wicked, he had no desire to go to the Ninevites. So he runs from God. And boards a ship, and he's going in the opposite direction from Nineveh, and we know the story, right? Storm comes about, and eventually through a number of factors, Jonah is tossed overboard. The sea immediately becomes calm. He's swallowed by a fish. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish. He's eventually spit out upon the dry land. He gets the message at this point, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to the Ninevites, and they repent. And Jesus here is saying, you will be given no sign except the sign of Jonah. And then he goes on, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah was a prophet called to a prophetic ministry preaching judgment and warning and calling for repentance. And Jesus, in his own way, was fulfilling a a prophetic ministry as well. We know that Jonah was a type of Christ, foreshadowing the death and resurrection of Jesus. He spends three days in the belly of this great fish, and then he is vomited out, literally, upon dry land. And then he goes to preach to the Ninevites. So Luke here, through the words of Jesus, is contrasting Jesus' ministry and Jonah's ministry and the response of this present generation and to that of the Ninevites. And so there's a lot into this, and Matthew goes into more detail about the sign being really pointing to the resurrection of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus. Luke doesn't involve that detail here. 
So he says, that's the sign that you will be given. And as we'll see just in a few moments as we impact that a little bit more, we know that Jonah preaches and the Ninevites repent. Jesus says, I'm giving you no more sign basically than what they got. Jonah preached and they repented. I've preached, I've performed miracles, Jesus is saying, and you still demand more. Basically what Jesus is saying to them is that you seek after a sign. I am that sign. It is through my ministry and my death and resurrection that will be the sign to you. You want a sign, you're looking at him and what I'm about to accomplish. You need nothing more. Think about that. What additional sign would have tipped them over? I mean, would it have been the fire from heaven? Would it have been an earthquake? Would it have been something floating around and maybe letters in the sky? What, what, what sign would have been the tipping point from them? I mean, think about that. He's healed the sick by the masses. He's turned water into wine. He's made the blind to see. He's made the lame to walk. He's raised the dead. He's calmed the sea. He's cast out demons. And he's taught them as one who had authority. He's done all of this in public. And it wasn't enough. He's done all this. And some, as we saw last week, not only denied it, some didn't deny it, they, they actually attributed these works to Satan. Their problem was not that they needed further signs. Their problem was that they couldn't see what was already provided for them. I think this goes to show that spiritual blindness is never content with the sufficiency of Christ's work. It always demands more. People continue in their unbelief today for many, many, many reasons. But no one can say to God, or to anyone for that matter, no one can say it's because they still need more proof. Friends, God has provided all that we need. His work of redemption has been complete in Christ Maybe, maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching via our live stream and, and maybe you're genuinely struggling to believe the claims of Jesus. In no way do we want to ridicule you for that. Maybe you're genuinely trying to understand the truth about who God is and about what he's done. And so you're wrestling today maybe to believe the, the truth of Jesus. Maybe you hear all of this and think, if, if God would just write it in the sky or if he would just speak audibly, I'll believe it. If he would just prove himself to me in some tangible, visible way, I'll believe it. If he would just do this or do that, then maybe I would come to faith in Jesus. Friend, your, your problem is not that you need another sign. The problem exists not with the lack of evidence, but with the darkness of your own heart. In Luke chapter 16, there's a story of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. 
Rich man dies and he goes to hell. He's suffering in anguish. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, kind of a heavenly picture there that we see. And the rich man is in hell suffering in anguish. And he pleads with Lazarus there in Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom to, to, to go. The rich man's pleading from punishment to, for Lazarus to, to go to his father's house and to warn his brothers that they would trust in God and put their hope so that they wouldn't go to where he was. Rich man's suffering. He simply pleads with Lazarus, go and tell my brothers so that they don't come here. And Abraham said, we're told in that text, and Abraham said, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. And the poor man said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses or the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, Jesus makes very clear through that parable that their need was not some need from some, for some other additional miracle or somebody being raised from the dead to, to prove something. And the point's being made is that the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done is enough. Take him at his word. If you're struggling to, to, to embrace these truths regarding who Jesus is, your need is not for additional signs. God has given us all that we need, everything you need to come to him. He's given it. Take him at his word. Take the word of the countless witnesses recorded us for, for us in God's word, which has been preserved for thousands of years. And God has given you all that you need to trust in and to follow him. Maybe as a Christian, you have a friend or a family member who's struggling with the claims of Christ. Maybe you've shared the gospel with them, or maybe you, you, they've, you know that they've been in places where they've heard the gospel countless times, and maybe you're tempted to either give up or to get creative to try to convince them. Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded that we need not gimmick people into the kingdom of God. We're not called to manipulate or to somehow dress up the good news as if it needs help, or, or to try to come up with a sign to try to convince people of what is true. As believers, we're simply called to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done because that's the only sign that will save. So it's a revealing request. It reveals the true condition of their hearts. It reveals that, that their need is not the need of signs. Their need is a change of heart. Number two, and we see a sobering contrast. Jesus not only refused to grant additional signs, but he goes further says, I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah, but he goes further in his response to rebuke the evil generation, and he does it by contrasting them with two examples from the Old Testament. Let's look at this. Verse 30, he says, For Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
have some contrast here. First of all, you have the testimony of a pagan queen. Here Luke refers to her as the queen of the south. Some texts say the queen of Sheba, most likely from the area of Ethiopia there. She comes, you can read about this account in 1 Kings chapter 10. She traveled all the way from that region to visit King Solomon in Israel in order to hear and to test his wisdom with hard questions. She'd heard about his wisdom, travels that journey to to hear this wisdom that Solomon supposedly had. And what she found was much more than she expected. He was indeed wise. God had granted him this wisdom. And Jesus contrasts the present generation, these crowds, with her because she responded favorably to Solomon's wisdom. The present crowds had not responded favorably to Jesus, who is greater than Solomon. So you see what he's doing here. He, he's, he, he's going full in. Notice Luke provides a significant detail of how he describes her. He says, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This geographical description clarifies that she, in fact, is a cultural and religious outsider. She's an outsider, and yet she responds favorably to the wisdom of Solomon. Contrast that with the crowds many of which were Jews. In Matthew's account, it was the Pharisees that were posing this question to Jesus. Contrast that with these Jewish people who had the law, who grew up with the prophets, who had the covenant. These were insiders, if you will. And Jesus is saying that the outsiders, the pagan queen from the south, responded more favorably to Solomon's wisdom, and something greater than Solomon is here, and you don't see it. Testimony number one, they will rise, she will rise up in the judgment and condemn you because of her own response. Testimony number two, the testimony of a pagan nation. In the case of Nineveh, we have an entire nation, not just a queen, but an entire nation outside of the covenant, a nation of idolatry and extreme wickedness. Yet Jonah eventually goes and preaches, and they repent. These pagan, ungodly outsiders, as Ninevites, respond to the preached word that Jonah goes and proclaims, and they repent. Yet, this present generation, they're not repenting. They're not believing. So what you see here is these two groups of pagan Gentiles, a queen and an entire nation, will rise up at the judgment to condemn the present generation because they responded favorably to the message, whereas this generation did not. And the point he's making is that, that not only have you not responded, something greater than Solomon and something greater than Jonah is standing before you and you do not believe it. They were called evil, and they were warned of the coming condemnation because they had denied both 
the sufficiency of Christ and the authority of Christ. They did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not see his authority, the fact that he was the greater Solomon, the greater Jonah. The fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. Two things I think that we should take away from that regarding application just briefly. Number one, we see the true condition of the spiritually blind in this passage. This present generation was spiritually blind, enslaved to the darkness. They could not and they would not see the truth about Jesus no matter what sign had been produced. As John put it in John 1, 11, Jesus said through John, and John, this is John's account, Jesus said there he, or John said he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then we get some further commentary on that in John 3. In John 3, verse 19, we read this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Listen, the crowds and the generation, the Pharisees, all of these, these early Jewish people that were demanding more from Jesus, they were asking for something they really didn't want. If they were truly going to be led out of their bondage, then they had all that they needed. And because of their refusal to see the truth that stood before them, they would be condemned. Think about that. Think about, think about the queen of the south. Think about the Ninevites, outsiders, religiously, socially, culturally, in every way. They hear a word from God, whether it's the wisdom through Solomon or through the preaching of Jonah, they hear it and they respond favorably. Outsiders, no knowledge of the covenant, our knowledge. They, they, they didn't have any of these things. They, didn't, they weren't clinging to the promise. And they respond favorably. And now you have this generation, this, this first century Israelites who are seeing these miracles happen. They're seeing all this in public. And they, they, they've believed the promises of God. They know the law. They know the prophets. They know what the Old Testament scriptures has said. And now standing right before them is the fulfillment their proximity to Jesus is radically closer than the proximity of the queen and the Ninevites, and they reject it. Seeing, they did not see. Hearing, they did not hear. This is the true condition of the spiritually blind. Friend, this is, this is the reality for all of us before we come to Christ, and if you're not a Christian, this is the current condition you live in. Let's understand that your greatest need, our greatest need was not to see yet another sign and wonder. Our greatest need is to embrace the one who stood before us and stands before us today, the one who fulfilled the promise, the one who came and gave himself 
through a life of obedience and yet died a sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross for our sin, to bear the punishment of our sin, to bear upon his own shoulders the judgment we deserved so that we could be forgiven and cleansed forever. And three days later, he was raised from the dead to declare his power and victory and authority over sin, death, and hell once and for all. And the promise is that if you would believe in him, the one that's greater than Solomon, the one that's greater than Jonah, if you would put your hope in him, your sins would be forgiven. You would be clothed in righteousness and accepted as one of God's own children for eternity. That is your hope, friend. You don't need a miracle. We don't need some dynamic light show and smoke screen up here. We don't need all this fancy gimmicky kinds of things. You need to hear the truth of God's word and the claims of Jesus Christ and say, yes, that is true. Yes, he's the savior. And yes, I will follow him. And that is the hope that this world has. Second point of application, the priority of the gospel. Jesus rebukes the crowds as evil and warns them of the coming judgment while continuing to point them to the greater sign. He does answer their question with a sign, their request. They say, we give us more sign. He said, I'll give you one. I'm the sign. Kind of short version. I'm the, I'm, I'm the sign. I'm standing right here before you. The one that's greater than Solomon, the one that's greater than Jonah, the one that's going to die on a cross and be raised from the dead three days later and ascend to the Father on high, the one who's coming again. I don't have all those details yet, but that's what he's saying. He's I'm the sign. You don't need anything greater. The queen and the Ninevites responded with what little revelation they had. And here the one who was greater than Solomon and Jonah and all the prophets stood before them and they wouldn't believe. Friends, it's a reminder to us as the church that the good news of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save. The world does not need a dressed up version of the gospel. The world does not need a gospel with helps to it. The the world does not need additional signs beyond the gospel. We have all we need in the gospel, and therefore the gospel must remain our top priority. We must believe it, and we must proclaim it, because it is the true sign. It is the way to salvation. The world will often demand more. And listen, our temptation will be to cave to the world's pressures And give them what they're asking for, but we must not. Jesus doesn't. He's he's not answering their every request. In fact, he says, no, I'm not going to give you, I'm going to give you one sign, and it's the gospel. That's all you need. It's just a reminder to us that the gospel is priority. It is it, It is sufficient in and of itself. The good news about, when I say the gospel, that's what we're referring to. Gospel means good news. The good news of who Jesus is as the son of God who came to save sinners and what he did. He lived a life of righteousness. He died a death on the cross. He was raised from the dead three days later. All of this is encapsulated in that word gospel that we use so often in the church. When we say gospel, it has everything to do with what Jesus did and who he is. And that is the way to salvation. You need nothing more. In church, we need to proclaim nothing more than that as the hope for the nations.
Number three, you go on in verses 33 through 36 and you see appointed admonition. Jesus moves on in verse 33, and at first these verses seem a bit disconnected, but what we actually have here is an illustration Jesus uses to make a point he's already made in verses 29 through 32. He compares, let me just read the first few verses here. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand. Why? So that those who enter may see the light. Jesus is now comparing the message he proclaims the truth of who he is and the message in which he proclaims to light. In essence, just as light was never meant to be covered up and hidden, so it is the case with the truth, with the message that he comes to proclaim and to accomplish. His teaching was no secret, but was being openly declared and openly proclaimed. And the truth was to be a shining light in the darkness, and the impact of that light would be evident. See that, right? No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cell or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who may enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as a lamp when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The light coming from Jesus, the message coming from Jesus was intended to be declared and displayed for all to see and to hear, to be received. But the reality is, is it was largely being rejected by this evil generation. Verse 34, he refers to the eye. The eye is the means by which light reaches the, the person's inward mind. And you have two types of eyes. You have good, healthy eyes, and you have bad eyes that don't see, right? You have a healthy eye and a bad eye. A healthy eye is the one that accepts the light, and the light comes in and impacts the rest of the person. A bad eye, notice there, there in that text, he talks about the bad eye, verse 34, when it is bad. That same word bad is the same word that that Jesus used when he says this generation is an evil generation. Evil and bad are the same exact word. And so he's, he's, con he's comparing the two. When your eye is bad or evil, your body is full of darkness. A bad eye will leave a person in darkness. The condition of the eye will ultimately determine the condition of the body, whether it's full of darkness or whether it's full of light. And Jesus is in essence saying, if you don't see me for who I am, you don't see anything but darkness. If you don't trust in me by faith, then your life will remain dark. And the key verse, I think, in all of this is verse 35, because I think this is the, the admonition. This is the warning. This is the point, the buildup that he's getting to. And he says all of this, and then he says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. This is an exhortation to this unbelieving, wicked, evil generation. And notice, by the way, that he's still holding out the possibility for repentance. He, he's, he's pointed to their condemnation. He's pointed, just like, just like Jonah did, to, to the Ninevites, right? To the, to the pending judgment but yet he still holds out hope 
the opportunity to respond to him. We know that there's a lot that Jesus says about judgment, but there's so much grace even in the midst of his warning of judgment. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. The point Jesus is driving home here is this. Take care that you do not remain hardened by the deceitfulness of sin by rejecting the light of the gospel so that the entire course of your life has continued to be marked by darkness. The light is the hope of the gospel. The light is the truth of who Jesus is and what he did to secure our redemption. And if that light is received, then it will shine through the fullness of our lives. And yet if it is rejected, that will be evident as well. Make sure you're entrusting yourself to Jesus and to nothing and no one else. Notice here that the possibility for repentance, again, remains still yet. He doesn't close off the opportunity to respond. Friends, we are not the Jews of the first century. But we are similar to them in this way. Our proximity to Jesus. They saw him. They heard him. And yet they rejected him. They saw him in all that he was, and yet, as we continue to have the rest of Scripture through the New Testament, we have the full record. We're in much better shape than the Queen of the South and the Ninevites were. We have a lot more in common with the first century Jews because of the coming of Christ, but we're in even a better spot because we have the complete revelation of God, and we know that not only did Jesus go to a cross and die, he was raised from the dead on the third day, he did promise to come again. We see how the church continues to advance throughout the world. The church is built, being built. We have a fuller picture. Our proximity in that way is, is much more closer to Jesus than even this early generation. And so, friend, you may not have embraced the light, and you may still similarly be demanding God show you something more. That's a dangerous and deadly place to be. We have everything we need in this book that God has left us as a record of what he's promised and what he's accomplished for your redemption. We need no more signs. God has given us the sign in Christ. And that is our hope. A few things for us to leave on today as we consider all that Jesus has said here. Number one, examine your own heart for the light. Verse 35 should ring in your ears. Take care lest the light in you be darkness. It's a play on words, obviously. It's a straightforward appeal to you to consider what it is that is the foundation of your hope and life. Are you believing in the light? Are you believing in the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done? Or are you demanding for something more from God? Are you trusting in the gospel as it's been given to us? Are you demanding something more, something different? And think about the light we've been given. 
More light even than the crowds had, certainly more than Solomon in Jonah's day. We have the Old and New Testament. We have the record of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. We have churches spread all over the globe as living proof of what the gospel does. We have all this light. Make sure that it's that light that your hope is in. A lot of lights, a lot of things that are buying for your attention today that, 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 that is tempting to put your hope in. Do not put your hope for your salvation in anything else but Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. Examine your own heart for that light. Is that light there? Is it present? Are you believing it? And I even say that to you if you've sat in church gatherings like this for years as an adult. You've heard this and you've heard this and you've heard this, but is the light, is it genuinely your hope? Is Christ your hope? Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're, you've been kind of raised in a Christian home and, and yet you've not, you've not made that step to put your hope in Christ. You just assume because you're in a Christian family that you're kind of good with God. Or maybe because you've come to church. This good news is for you to receive by faith. Examine your own heart for the light. Does the light shine or is your life still marked by the darkness? Number two, commit to advancing the light. If Jesus is in fact the light of the world, if eternal and abundant life is found solely through him, then we must, as his people, go forward with boldness, holding forth this light for a lost world. Verse 39, we, we are to be those who put the lamp out for people to see. Church has that responsibility to be light bearers. We aren't the light, but we must point people to the light. We must encourage and exhort people to take hold of this light. And friends, this is not easy work. It's not for the faint of heart. Think about, have you ever walked into a dark room, maybe at work or at home, someone's watching TV or somebody's working, and you walk into this dark room and you turn the light on? What's the typical response? If somebody's in that dark room and they've been there a while, then the, the odds are that they want it to be dark. They like the darkness. And so if you walk in and flip the light switch on it, my guess is there's going to be immediate protest. There's going to be immediate hostility flung at you because of what you've done. Well, friends, that's what happens oftentimes when we take the light of the gospel into a dark world, when we shine the light into darkness. John 3 reminds us earlier that people don't respond to the light because they love the darkness. They love the darkness. But friends, as Christians, as the church, we have the calling to go to those dark places and turn the light on. That is our responsibility to go into this world, to go into our families, our neighborhoods, and our, our, our state, our nation, our, our, our world, and to turn the light on so that people can see. And many times they're going to be irritated at us. They're going to hate us. They're going to dislike us. Many are going to quickly seek to snuff out the light, but it's their only hope. It's their only hope. And it's a glorious hope. It's a glorious hope. What, what happens is they... By God's grace, some will see just how valuable and glorious the light truly is. And they will say, how could I enjoy the darkness when I have this? 
They, they, they will respond. Some will respond. So we are called to commit, to advance, and to proclaim and to declare this light. And then number three and lastly, we need to affirm the impact of the light. You know, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, Jesus says. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright. The light impacts you. The light of the gospel, as we receive it, brings about change in our lives. It's, think about that. It's easy to see the darkness, isn't it? It's easy to see sin sometimes, many times, but we tend to, 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 to navigate towards what's messed up or what's broken in our lives and in other people's lives as well. We can point out the negative. But friends, let this be a reminder to us and a, and a call to us to, to affirm the glories of the light in people's lives. One of, the great, one of the glories of the gospel is the transforming work it does in us as a whole. And let us be quick to affirm that work in one another's lives. To acknowledge where we see light. To where we see evidences of God's grace at work. We know that Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. But it's interesting, and in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. To encourage his followers. In chapter 5, verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Christians, before you're tempted to think that this is a message only for the non-Christian, let this be a reminder to each of us that not only are we called to proclaim the light, we are called to display the light. Let that be a reminder to us to be those who affirm that in others' lives as we see it going on and as we see the light transforming people by grace. Let that be something we acknowledge and affirm. Friends, as we close out this morning, let us be reminded that we have all we need to be saved, to be safe with God. We have everything we need to be reconciled as sinners to a holy and just God. And that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And have you responded to him in faith? Are you trusting in him? Have you turned from your sin and put your hope in him for your redemption? If not, friend, why would you linger? Why would you wait any longer to do that? Why would you continue to cling to the darkness when you can have hope brought to you in the light. Church, let us be reminded that this is our stewardship as well, that we are called to be those who herald the light, to point to the sign of Jesus Christ and to say there's where salvation is found. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for hope that we've been given Thank you for the light that you have shined into this world filled with darkness. Thank you, God, that you have given a sign and that it is a sufficient sign, that it is a good sign, the fact that you sent your one and only Son into this world to live and yet be crucified on a cross for our sin and yet three days later to be raised from the dead. Lord, there is an empty tomb that continues to declare this glorious good news and the hope that's ours 
because of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for what we've been given. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in this dark world without light. God, we thank you that you have acted graciously and faithfully to shine your light into this world so that we can have hope. Father, would you grant that saving hope today to those who are in the darkness? And for those who are in the light, would you help us to rejoice in that hope? Help us to rejoice and to delight in the good news of Jesus Christ, to treasure you above all else in this world, and to be diligent and faithful stewards, declaring the light so that others can know you. Father, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.